1: Home um, Broadcast Center.
2: This is Take Two. me Martinez. California has a new database on homelessness. It's the first time information has been gathered on a state level. We'll hear how all that data will be used to help the unhoused. Plus, Gavin Newsom plans to lift most state COVID restrictions by mid-June. County Health Director Barbara Ferrer tells us how ready she thinks L.A. is to fully reopen. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Coming up. Because at the end of the day, you all know this, you can't manage what you don't measure.
2: That's uh, Governor Gavin Newsom last year announcing plans for a system to better track information about the thousands of people experiencing homelessness in the state. Well, it was officially unveiled on Wednesday, so we'll talk about how it's all going to work and how it could help. That's just ahead. But first, President Biden this morning unveiled a series of executive orders, all aimed at curbing gun violence in America. Our flag was still flying
1: at half staff were the victims of the horrific murder of eight primarily Asian-American people in Georgia, when 10 more lives were taken in a mass murder in Colorado. You probably didn't hear it, but between those two incidents, less than one week apart, there were more than 850 additional shootings. 850 that took the lives of more than 250 people and left 500, 500 injured. This is an epidemic for God's sake, and it has to stop.
2: Some of those in-between incidents include one just yesterday in South Carolina where a former NFL player is suspected of killing six people. And just last week in the city of Orange, not far from us uh, here in LA, another mass shooting left five dead. Both incidents included young children among the victims. Now, the actions the White House intends to take to curb such violence include a limit on so-called ghost guns and a guide to make it easier to block people from buying firearms if there's evidence that they're a danger. To discuss all of this, we've called up Garen Wintermute. He's a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and expert on gun violence as a public health issue. Doctor, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Let's start with uh, ghost guns. Can you remind us what exactly ghost guns are?
1: Sure. A ghost gun is a fully functional firearm that is produced by a private individual uh, at home or in a similar setting. Um, There is no record of its production or its existence. There's no serial number. If it's used in a crime, it's not traceable. Ghost gun.
2: Okay. yeah, that gun is completely off the grid no matter what. So what does the Biden administration want to change about them?
1: Well, we have to see what the final rule is that they're going to propose. But the, the nub of the issue is that it is very easy to make ghost guns at home in large numbers um, off the grid, as you said. And in some way or ways, the administration intends to make that much more difficult.
2: Okay, now the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or uh, the ATF, will have a proposal to legally treat what are called buy-build shoot kits, uh, such as firearms. How might that actually make a difference in gun violence happening every day?
1: So this is one very specific case of ghost gun production. There was a company outside Carson City, Polymer 80 was its name, that in one cute little plastic box would sell the not quite finished frame for a pistol, instructions on how to complete the finishing of that frame and all the other parts needed to turn the finished frame into a fully functional firearm. ATF showed that 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 process could be done in 21 minutes. Um, And the administration has made it clear it tends to consider that package the equivalent of a firearm. There is a broader ghost gun issue that they may or may not address. As I said, we have to see.
2: That entire package would be classified as a, as a gun. Correct. Wow. All right. Now, another director from the Justice Department has the ATF investigating new ways in which firearms are being trafficked in order to uh, in, to inform new strategies on how to fight them. So, Doctor, what are some of the new ways guns are trafficked today?
1: Well, we've just talked about one, that what uh, people can... Produce in large numbers every 30 minutes or so, um, guns that have no record um, and that are as as functional and durable as our guns that are made by leading gun companies. And they they're produced to be sold under the table, and they are. And they're in 2019, law enforcement agencies recovered more than 10,000 of these ghost guns. So that's a new form of trafficking. Um, the other thing that these, this this report, these reports will look at is the traditional forms of trafficking that we, to be honest, have not looked at in more than 20 years. In the 90s, we could use information on recovered firearms to, to map criminal gun markets, who were the dealers that were involved, who were the individuals who were trafficking. And we haven't done that systematically for more than 20 years. In in that way, we know less about criminal gun markets now than we did almost a generation ago.
2: And, Doctor, are are guns 3D printed um, more now than maybe before?
1: Less. Um, 3D printing uh, has kind of gone by the wayside because the materials would not withstand repeated use. What has stepped into their place, the, if you will, modern ghost gun, is machined from what's called a blank receiver, a, a piece of metal, a piece of high-tech polymer that's not printed. It's molded or or fashioned in some other way and then machined. The difference between these guns and the 3D printed guns, the 3D printed guns were good for a round or two or a few. These are fully functional firearms. Okay. Now, red flag
2: laws are a uh, mm-hmm. big point of interest, specifically in cases of severe mental health and domestic violence. President Biden has asked the Justice Department to create a model legislation for states to adopt and called on the Senate to adopt a House-passed bill. Doctor, remind us uh, exactly how red flag laws work and how effective they've been when applied.
1: Sure. Um, here in California, we call them gun violence restraining orders. A lot of us don't use the term red flag laws, sort of insulting to gun owners. Um, But it it does this, there's a crisis and guns are involved and there's a credible threat of harm to self, as you mentioned, or harm to others. But no crime has been committed, the person who is the threat cannot be arrested. Um, They don't meet criteria for psychiatric hospitalization. But there's little doubt about the existence of a crisis. And this order, which California had the first law, we modeled it on domestic violence restraining orders here, allows a judge after hearing evidence to say, yep, we have a problem. Let's get the guns out of the equation while we resolve some of the other uh, matters. This is a relatively new policy. Um, Our group here is still evaluating California's law. There's some studies um, underway in other states. Here's the one thing that we know. Here in California, there have been, we studied 21 cases in which gun violence restraining orders were used in an effort to prevent a threatened mass shooting. And none of those mass shootings occurred. We're talking about the president. The President's Executive Actions
2: on Gun Violence with Dr. Garen Wintemute, Professor of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis. Uh, Dr. Assault Weapons uh, deserves some attention here, too. Uh, The Biden administration says all assault weapons and high capacity magazines should be banned again and strongly asserts that uh, not only does that policy does not conflict with the Second Amendment, but is actually backed up by the language in the Constitution. Um, What do you think of that? Do you agree? And if so, Why?
1: Well, I won't discuss the constitutional part of it. I'm not an attorney, I'm a physician and a researcher, Um, but I do think that the preponderance of the evidence is that restrictions on these weapons work. Um, One really good example is California. Uh, We have had such a ban in place um, ever since uh, the 90s, the late 80s, Um, and mass shootings are less common here than they are elsewhere. The thing to remember is, partly because of their design, partly because of those high-capacity magazines. These are weapons designed to put a lot of bullets downrange in a short period of time. They're designed for inflicting damage on masses of people, and that's how they're used.
2: The president also uh, mentioned uh, how critical he is of of gun manufacturers that are immune from lawsuits. Uh, What protections do gun manufacturers currently enjoy, and what's uh, the president's objection?
1: Yep. So there's a unique level of immunity for the firearm industry in the United States, um, especially given that there's a hazard inherent in firearms. Other industries, if they know that their product is unreasonably hazardous, if they market it in a way to increase that hazard and so forth, can be, can be held liable. The firearm industry uniquely enjoys immunity from that form of liability. If I'm a manufacturer and I make an individual gun poorly so that it breaks and damage ensues, I can be sued under what's called traditional product liability. Mm. But these other forms of product liability that have been used against tobacco simply cannot be used against firearms.
2: Now, President Biden also called for an end to the Charleston loophole, named for the mm-hmm. uh, 2015 mass shooting at a church in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Can you explain the exact loophole and how it applies to the Charleston murders in particular?
1: Yes, in in that particular case, the FBI staff who were doing the background check on the shooter uh, did not get the correct information back. They believed that shooter not to be a prohibited person and cleared the purchase, that was wrong. And we know what happened. The larger issue is this, that under federal law, the waiting period for a firearm purchase can be no longer than three business days. If the background check is not completed, the purchaser can still acquire the firearm um, if the retailer is willing to give it um, to them. And about 6,000 times a year, we discover after the person has acquired the firearm, that they are a prohibited person and somebody has to go out and get the guns back. Industry has stepped up here. Walmart, what the nation's largest firearm retailer, has said for decades, we will not release a firearm to a purchaser until we are told that the background check is complete and we can proceed.
2: Now, Doctor, the White House says that there's real support on both sides of the aisle for this kind of legislation. Um, I, I, I gotta admit, I, I'll believe that when I hear it. Uh, but what's your sense of true bipartisan support for these specific measures?
1: Well, it it varies from one to another. Um, I. Th- To be honest, um, I think there will be a lot of support. There may be some support among Republicans. It will vary from measure to measure at the low end ban on assault weapons, I suspect. Um, At the high end, um, something about ghost guns. At at the same time, a number of the uh, measures that are announced today are being taken by executive action precisely because I think um, there might not be widespread support in Congress. Having said that, some of what are seen as the most ambitious measures, requiring a background check for all purchases, for example, are supported by more than 90 percent of the American public and by very large majorities, even of gun owners. The problem is that Congress just can't get the job done.
2: That's Dr. Garen Wintemute, professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, also an expert on gun violence as a public health issue, talking about President Biden's executive actions to address gun violence. Doctors always thank you very much. A pleasure. Governor Gavin Newsom plans to lift most COVID restrictions on the state's businesses and workplaces by June 15th. Now, still got to wear a mask for a while and a few other things need to go the state's way, but at least there's a target date. County Health Director Barbara Ferrer tells us how ready she thinks LA is to fully reopen. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
5: Hi, it's Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. There were 356,000 fewer journalists working in 2023 than 20 years ago. If you care about education, if you care about the rise in homelessness, and if you're passionate about the climate emergency, trusted independent journalism benefits us all. Donate now at laist.com/gif. Democracy needs to be heard.
1: All's my life I has to fight.
0: All's my life I. Hard times like, yeah. We gon' be alright. We gon' right, be alright.
2: We gon' be alright. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on KPCC.org, Ami Martinez. Disability advocates say they're outraged after a 25-year-old deaf man who has autism, was shot and wounded by a sheriff's deputy last week. More than 100 advocates joined the family of Isaías Cervantes at a rally in downtown L.A. Monday. Justice for who? who? Yeah. Cervantes' so family says it's going to file a lawsuit over the shooting, which sent him to the ICU. KPCC's Robert Grova has been following this story. Uh, Robert, so what do we know about what happened?
6: Well, the sheriff's department said deputies responded to a family disturbance call at the Cudahy home of Cervantes. It said he attacked one of the deputies and was gouging at his eyes while trying to take his gun. And that's when a deputy shot Cervantes. Uh, the family's lawyer tells a very different story. Austin Dove says one of Cervantes' sisters called 911 when he, was, uh, he, he had become agitated. Dove said when the deputies arrived, Cervantes refused to go outside to talk to them. He said the deputies then entered the home and each grabbed one of Cervantes' arms, and they tried to handcuff him. Um, and as that was happening, his hearing aid fell out. Dove claims Cervantes was eventually shot in the back, and both he and the family maintained that Cervantes was, was unarmed.
2: Robert, those are two very different versions.
6: Yeah, um, now the, the deputies did record the incident on their body cams, so we will get to see it, you know get to see that video but at some point. The sheriff's department has promised to release the footage as soon as possible. I'll note that Dove strongly criticized the deputies' tactics. He said they were told that Cervantes had autism, was deaf and unable to respond to certain cues, and yet they had shot him with, within three minutes of arriving at the house. Dove also said that uh, when he tried to visit Cervantes at the hospital, Deputies denied him access at first, even after he explained that he was Cervantes' lawyer.
2: Robert, doesn't the sheriff's department have a special team or a special unit to deal with a situation like this?
6: Yep. uh, The mental evaluation teams are met. Uh, They consist of a specially trained deputy and a clinical social worker, and they do respond to cases involving people with autism. Those teams are expert at de-escalating situations and making sure no one gets hurt. The sheriff's department said that in 2020, MET was able to respond to 42% of all reported crisis calls. But the sheriff's department told me that MET was not called to respond in the Cervantes case. And at this point, it's not clear why. We should note that the Civilian Oversight Commission recommended the county should have 60 MET teams at minimum. They have a little more than half that number now.
2: What does the Cervantes family have to say about what happened?
6: Well, his sister, Yadira Cervantes, uh, who helps with caregiving, actually, for her brother, told me she's heartbroken.
3: And We have a lot of anger. He was just really so happy, so innocent. so innocent. He loved music. He was the energy of the house.
6: Yadira said, you know, she's worried her brother won't ever walk again. She also said the family had called for help for Cervantes before and then it had been handled differently. She said she felt like the family was treated like criminals in their own home by the deputies.
2: Mentioned up top that disability advocates are are upset over this. So what are they saying about this case?
6: So they're saying that this is just another example of why armed law enforcement should not be responding to crisis calls like this. Uh, Judy Mark, uh, president of Disability Voices United, uh, she spoke at the rally on Monday.
3: I have personally worked with the police departments around Los Angeles to train thousands of police officers on how to recognize autism. And guess what? It didn't work. It didn't
6: work. Mark uh, has a 24-year-old son with autism. Now, there are efforts both at the county and the city level to move to an unarmed response to this type of crisis call, but it's slow going. The city of L.A. is currently looking at a pilot program that could send out uh, a crisis worker and a medic, so no cops. The L.A. City Council voted uh, just yesterday, actually, to figure out what's needed to expand the LEPD's version of mental health crisis team's those are similar to the sheriff's MET teams. They include one armed officer and a social worker, and they're understaffed by some measures as well. The county's gearing up to launch a fleet of five vans staffed with mental health experts, not police. It's also taken steps to divert some 911 calls to its mental health helpline. You know, so, so there's, there's been some progress, but it's a, it's a long road.
2: Absolutely. Uh, that's uh, KPCC's criminal justice reporter, Robert Garova. Robert, thanks a lot.
6: Thanks, a
0: beside me here beside me
2: All right, moving on. Even as cases climb in parts of the U.S., California is slowly lifting its COVID-19 restrictions. KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier spoke with L.A. County Health Director Barbara Ferrer about a range of topics, including getting teenagers vaccinated and why this is such a critical time in the pandemic.
3: I'd like to get your response to the tentative reopening date of June 15th. Governor Newsom said a lot of the COVID-19 restrictions will be lifted if our hospitalizations remain stable and case counts low. Masking will still be required. But as a public health official, what do you think of dropping some of the restrictions? Many of the restrictions on capacity will disappear, but some of the basic infection
0: control practices I think will be around for many weeks to come. For now, I know that, you know, we're going to need to to make sure that we have mask wearing. We've also got to wait and get, you know, a lot more information about vaccine effectiveness. This vaccine is so powerful right now. Uh, It's really good on protecting people from serious illness uh, with ample evidence that it, it really protects people from being hospitalized and from dying. But it, if 10% of uh, everybody who's vaccinated can still become infected and we find out those people can still go ahead and, and pass on that infection, uh, we'll need to continue to, to take care of each other wearing masks.
3: Cases are lower, but the coronavirus is still spreading, and a key way to control that is with contact tracing. Are people answering contact tracers' questions? We're averaging about 50% of the new cases
0: actually complete our interviews. So we're going to be piloting some additional efforts in some of the hardest-hit communities where we'll now have community health workers that will be able to go and visit uh, and allow us to identify close contacts and, and get in touch with them. 16-
3: 16- and 17-year-olds will be able to be vaccinated next week, but they need to get the Pfizer vaccine because it's the only one authorized by the FDA for their age group. How does L.A. County plan on getting those teenagers vaccinated? I think what
0: we're going to end up needing to do, and obviously working out the details this week, is, is really have some designated sites where young people know they'll be able to get vaccinated people 16 and 17. But, you know, it it is highly likely that we'll find a fair number of sites that will be able to partner with the schools. And at least for 16 and 17 year old students, that may be one of the easier strategies if we can get it to work where they can, you know, really have an identified location within their school district uh, where they'd be able to get vaccinated.
3: Barbara, what are you planning on doing this summer if our cases keep trending down? You know, for the first time, I, I booked a vacation for the summer, and
0: you know, because I feel really confident that that this summer, uh, a, we're going to be allowed to travel. You know, that's true already for people who are fully vaccinated, but b, that that the situation will be so much better.
3: Cases are skyrocketing in some parts of the United States, though we're not seeing that yet in California. What's top of mind for you right now?
0: The one issue that you know is top of mind for us is. You know, the balancing act right now, you know, part of me wants to just say, you know, folks, we are so very close right now, but we are also so very much not there. And if we're not particularly careful as we're doing more reopenings and we're allowing for what I call more mingling, if we're not very careful during this, uh, these next four or six weeks, While we actually are able to accelerate the number of people who get vaccinated and have that protection, uh, we could see an increase in cases. And we also could see, unfortunately, uh, the dominance of some of these variants of concern, which are just more infectious. None of that would be good for us. And it would thwart our ability to get to that June 15th deadline. For the most part, everyone who dies from here on in, is more than likely to uh, be passing away because they weren't yet vaccinated, you know, from COVID-19. And so, you know, our job is is to keep everyone alive right now until they can get vaccinated.
3: Thanks, Barbara.
0: Thanks, Jackie. Bye-bye.
3: Barbara Ferrer is the Director of the LA County Department of Public Health. For KPCC, I'm Jackie Fortier.
2: And now we have Jackie on the line to talk more about this. Uh, Jackie Ferrer mentioned the variants. So what do we know about the different virus variants currently present in L.A.?
3: Well, we found out yesterday that the variant first detected in the U.K. is now the dominant variant in L.A. County. That is not good news. Uh, It is much more transmissible and it makes people even more sick. Ferrer also announced at a press conference yesterday that for the first time, people in L.A. have tested positive with the variants first found in South Africa and Brazil.
2: Any sense if they are more or less resistant to the current vaccines?
3: Well, the good news is all of these mutations are covered under the three vaccines, which have proven to keep you from going to the hospital or, or dying uh, if you contract any of the mutations of the virus. Obviously, you have to get the shot. So these are all you know, very good reasons to get your COVID vaccine. Um, one of the reasons why contact tracing is so important is that it keeps new cases from happening because every time another person gets the virus, it gives the virus the chance to mutate potentially to a form that our current vaccines won't work so well on.
2: So on that, on contact tracing, Jackie, Ferrer Mm -hmm. mentioned how about 50 percent of new cases are completing their interviews. So remind us what contact tracing does and how much will having that information on half of those new cases help control the coronavirus?
3: Yeah, contact tracing is a a centuries-old shoe leather public health technique. Uh, You know, now it's usually done over the phone, but it works. After someone tests positive, a contact tracer from the county will get in touch with them and ask them questions about where they were in the last two weeks when they were infectious and who they've been in close contact with to keep the virus from spreading. Then they get in contact with those people who may have been infected so they know to quarantine. I was a little surprised when Ferrer told me that only half of the people who test positive in L.A. are answering those questions. Mm. Of course, you know, the more people participate, the fewer cases we have. Every prevention strategy helps.
2: Right, every little bit helps. Now, you two also talked about 16- and 17-year-olds. The reason Mm -hmm. those kids can be vaccinated, of course, is because everyone over 16 will be eligible on the 15th. Now, how prepared is L.A. to handle what uh, is uh, bound to be a rush on shots?
3: Yeah, I mean, they've had months to prepare and stand up mass vaccination sites Ferrer keeps saying that the county could handle vaccinating over 600,000 people per week if they had the doses. Honestly, I think they're as ready as they'll ever be. Next week, when it opens up, the 16 and 17 year olds are a little trickier because they do need that Pfizer vaccine. Just to be clear, because it is the only one authorized by the FDA for the age for their age group. Um, the other vaccines made by Johnson and Johnson and Moderna are for 18 and over. So, like we heard, Ferrer told me that the health department is working on designating specific sites at schools where 16- and 17-year-olds can get vaccinated, so it's, it's really easy. You know, the name of the game with the, with the COVID vaccine is Convenience make it as easy as possible, and hopefully everyone will get the shot.
2: Now, in your interview, uh, Ferrer echoed the governor who said in his reopening announcement on Tuesday that masks and ongoing vigilance will still be required. And, Jackie, I'm going to be doing that for a long time. I don't care what anyone says when they see me years from now. Now, that's a subtle reminder, (laughs) obviously, that despite vaccinations, the coronavirus is probably not going anywhere. So, Jackie, what do we need to keep in mind as we think about living with it?
3: I think right now, you know, we're in the ultimate marshmallow test We've been talking for over a year about the importance of wearing masks, physical distancing, but now we know that the end is in sight. You know, at the same time, there's a huge increase in cases in the upper Midwest and it is getting closer. Colorado's cases are going up here in California. Our cases have plateaued, which is great, but we're just on that cusp of the vaccines opening up to all adults next week and businesses opening back up. But we really need to hold off on parties and and keep wearing our masks even after we get the shot so that California can avoid another big rush of cases because it will not happen gradually. If it does happen, it will be very quick if we're not careful.
2: One more thing, because Ferrer mentioned that she's planning mm-hmm. a vacation this summer, which I'm sure is exactly what plenty of other people are planning. But. That's going to be a lot of people moving around, both into and out of L.A. It'll be nice for the economy. But, uh, Jackie, how high of a health risk is it?
3: Yeah, boy, it would be really nice if we had like a Geiger counter for COVID, wouldn't it? It would, uh, you know, show (laughs) you if you'd been exposed and by how much. But unfortunately, we don't. So we have to do what we know works, which, of course, is wearing masks as soon as more people mingle, you're going to see more cases. Um, You know, we live in a mega city. It's an international destination. If this pandemic has proved anything, it is how interconnected we truly are. So, you know, I think wearing a piece of cloth over your face is a pretty small sacrifice when it means that it saves lives.
2: That's right. That's uh, KPCC health reporter Jackie 48. Jackie, thanks a lot.
3: Thanks. Now,
2: all week, we've been talking about the big California reopening this summer. We've heard from the expert, but we now want to hear from you, our listeners. So how do you feel about reopening June, June 15th? Excited? Nervous? A little bit of both? Tell us why. You can leave us a message on our voicemail at 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. Don't forget to leave your name, how we can contact you, and where you are from. That number again, 626-583-5281. All right, California has a new database on homelessness. It's the first time information has been gathered on a state level. We'll hear how all that data collection will be used to help the unhoused. That's next when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
0: So many
3: Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.
4: Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round.
2: This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I
4: think they're so smart. Just... What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vella Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.
2: Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Amy e. Martinez. It's been estimated that about 160,000 people are unhoused in California. That's according to a count in 2020. And it's a lot, even for a state as big as ours, as that number is about half, half of all the homeless throughout the United States. Keeping track of all the data that goes along with the people at the center of this issue is a big job. So late yesterday, state officials unveiled the homelessness, the homeless data integration system. That's the first attempt to collect information about who is reaching out for services across the state to help policymakers better address the state's homelessness crisis. Here to tell us more about it is Ali Sutton, Deputy Secretary of Homelessness at the state's Business, Consumer Affairs and Housing Agency. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much.
2: Now, how many years of data have you collected at this point, And what did it show about the number of unhoused people counted so far by this system?
4: Yeah, so we've collected um, uh, four years of, of data from what are called homeless continuums of care, of care across the state. They're sort of regional planning entities. Um, that provide local, uh, local funding and local services to, to people experiencing homelessness across the state. And, and what we're seeing is that this, unlike the, the sort of point in time count that 160,000 number you mentioned, this is the number of people that are served by our homelessness response system across the state throughout a year. Um, and we've seen, I think, remarkably, that the, the number of people that the system has been able to serve over that course of the four years has increased significantly.
2: So to be clear, the 117,000 is people served. The 160,000 could be people that have not been served as as well in that number.
4: Yeah, so this is so tricky, but I'll try my very best. Yeah. <laughs> so that 160 number... Um, is actually comes from a, a point-in-time count, is what it's called, that our, our federal um, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development requires local communities to, to collect once a year. It's it's sort of a homelessness census, for lack of a better word. It's it's at any given night across the state. We think that there are about 150,000 people experiencing homelessness. What the, the data system we we launched just yesterday is showing is the number of people that are served that are actually getting services to try to become permanently housed. And so our what was launched yesterday shows that actually over the course of 2020, um, our homelessness response system across the state actually served closer to 248,000 individuals that were experiencing homelessness with some sort of service um, in an attempt to, to get permanent housing. And that from that number, actually almost 92,000 individuals were able to access permanent housing thanks to the services they received.
2: Yeah, you know, and I get that there that there's context to those two numbers, you know. But the average person thinks, well, does anyone know then what the number is? Because I think (laughs) just the average person wants to get this thing figured out, and if there are different dueling numbers, they get frustrated.
4: I know, and we we do too. I I acknowledge that. I think the thing that we keep being really mindful of, though, is that the number of people experiencing homelessness is not static. People are becoming homeless, and others are being you know rehoused or permanently housed daily. And so what the system really allows us to do is see that dynamic nature of homelessness in a much clearer way than we've been able to at the state to date. And so being able to use that to make better informed decisions at a state level around the policies and and sort of resources we put out is really, really critical and and sort of first of of its kind um, in many respects.
2: So what standard did you end up applying so that the data is consistent?
4: Yeah, so the reason um, we actually were able to stand up this entire system, we built it in just 15 weeks, which for a state technology project is is pretty impressive. And the reason we were able to do that um, is because we collected data that was already being collected in a pretty uniform way across the state, thanks to some of the federal um, requirements that the US Department of Housing and Urban Development puts on these Continuums of Care. And so we were able to take that already collected data from the 44 entities across the state and put that into one data warehouse. And so the beauty is all of that data is consistent. It is the same data metrics. And, and thanks to the, what we built, um, it actually, we were able to deduplicate that and really clean it up for the first time. Um, so, so thankfully, a lot of that was already being collected. And then thanks to the technology infrastructure we use, we were able to really take it to the next level and clean it up to have a, a unique number of people being served across the state
2: talking to Allie Sutton, Deputy Secretary of Homelessness at the state's Business, Consumer Affairs, and Housing Agency. Uh, What insight does this system then provide in terms of people accessing services? I mean, how long does it take them, and and what challenges do they face?
4: Yeah, so what we were able to to launch yesterday is really just the beginning. And so we we were able to put out some information that we've learned to date. So those big numbers I mentioned earlier, as well as some really important information around racial disparities that we're seeing and sort of um, a range around subpopulations. I think our next cut at the data um, and, and the beauty of the system is that there's a lot deeper and richer analysis we're able to do. And so we're going to be looking into that. We'll be doing quarterly launches um, of additional information and learnings um, moving forward for, for the foreseeable future. And so some of the things you mentioned are those kinds of things where, where we need deeper analysis on. Really looking at that ninety-two um, thousand individuals that were permanently housed, and better understanding what made the system successful and what helped them get permanent housing, and how can we do more of that is really where we want to head with the system next.
2: So, what does that data then tell us about what's working and what's not working in terms of getting people into that permanent housing?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think what we're we're eager to do is really look at that that number and and try to understand. We know that. There's a really a broad diversity of people experiencing homelessness across our state and nobody is homeless for the same reason. Um, and so really being able to understand the nuance of, of what works for whom is going to take a lot deeper analysis. And so we're, we're doing some of that with our research team at the Homeless Coordinating and Financing Council are eagerly looking to partner with, with academic institutions across the state to really do that deeper dive. But, but the way it is right now, Honestly, we know that that information exists in the system. We just aren't there yet. Yes, yesterday was just the beginning of, of some very high-level information we've been able to take away from the system.
2: Now, I know that not every provider is included in this system. and A, and a lot of work, a lot of actually amount of unhoused people who didn't receive services aren't either in the system. So what's your plan to address that?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think to the point you were mentioning about that 160,000 numbers, not to, to get into to the weeds too much, but the, the importance of that number is that it, it does really, we see that, that point in time count as one of the puzzle pieces, HDIS, the system we just launched yesterday, being another really large piece of that puzzle, um, but really needing to understand that a lot of our unsheltered folks are not receiving services and needing to understand that population better through that point in time count. So we will keep an eye on that. We're eager to, to continue working with our, our federal partners around, around that data collection to better understand who's not getting services right now.
2: Do you have plans to integrate data from other data management systems to, into, into yours? And if so, what's the timeline there?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. We're really excited about this. So the, the system was built in a way that it can um, absorb and match to other state uh, systems. Right now we don't have a, a timeline just yet for that. Again, reminder it was a 15week build and so <laughs> we're sort of taking a, a breath today. Um, but I think we're very much looking uh, at the opportunity to do that in, in you know the coming coming months um, and years. But, but really knowing what we built yesterday and what we launched yesterday, um, there's a lot of rich information in there that we want to make sure we're, we're pulling out before we we take the next step with additional data.
2: You can't take too long of a breath, Ali. A lot of a lot of people want homelessness <laughs> to be figured out as soon as possible.
4: I assure you, we do too, which is uh, part of the beauty of of the team we have. And I will say this: that um, you know, we we're really proud of of the ability to pull this off and the the, the time frame we did, um, and, and the ability to make this public. Uh, and and have the public be able to interact with the data was really important for us uh, for that exact reason. We know that this is an issue many, many people across our state care about, and we want to be able to be transparent about what we're learning and partner with people across the state to to better um, solve this this incredible crisis that we are dealing with.
2: That's Allie Sutton, Deputy Secretary of Homelessness at the state's Business, Consumer Affairs, and Housing Agency. Allie, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so what comes first, the docu-series or the podcast? I mean, you can go either way. You can create a podcast and then create a docu-series to kind of piggyback it. Or, you know, you get a docu-series and then you talk about it on a podcast. Either way, Apple is doing all of it. We'll find out uh, what Apple is doing when Take-Two continues. Stay with us.
5: I'm L.A.'s food editor, Gab Chabran.
1: So we are going to do the chicken katsu damburi.
5: A taco is not just a taco. A pizza is not just a pizza. And noodles aren't just noodles.
0: We focus on all natural ingredients, okay? Everything is by hand.
5: I explore how food connects us to the social fabric of Southern California. Vietnamese sandwich shop here
2: on the corner of Ford and North Broadway in Chinatown.
5: And tells the region's story.
2: LAist Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts, Samia Martinez. Apple has announced the launch of two non fiction series, an original podcast and a documentary series called The Line. Plus, the team behind Serial has a new show on the way, and it's all about election fraud. For this and more, we turn to Nick Kwa, the go to journalist covering the podcast industry. Nick, welcome back. It's a pleasure. All right, let's start with the announcement from Apple. Tell us about their new original content production and why they decided to release it in two separate formats.
5: So here's the story. Earlier this week, Apple TV+, Plus, which is the company's streaming service platform, uh, announced something called The Lion, which is actually two separate but connected projects about the same story. And that story uh, that both projects are trying to tell is about Eddie Gallagher, uh, the former U.S. Navy SEAL who was charged in 2018 with committing war crimes in Iraq, uh, there's a lot of questions and sort of mysteries about that case, and that is ostensibly what these projects are about. So one of the projects is a podcast hosted by Dan Tapersky who is permanent in the podcast world for being the guy behind Missing Richard Simmons and Running From Cops. And the other project is a limited documentary series that's going to come out in the fall exclusively on the platform. And again, both projects are about this one story. The company is describing the two of them as being independently reported around the subject. So in theory, we're, we're getting two uh, different perspectives on, on, on this thing. Is this something new for Apple? And if so, what do you think about this direction? I think it is pretty new. I think at least it's in the direction of new. So the larger context here is that um, as Spotify has driven a bunch of attention for investing heavily in original podcast projects over the past few years, there's been a lot of questions as to whether Apple podcasts will do the same uh, for podcasting. And so over the past year or so, we've seen Apple put out some original audio content, but it's mostly stuff that's marketing material for its other businesses. Um, This project, The Line, is a little different, uh, ostensibly because the podcast is a standalone experience, and it's a separate team, and it's a well-known podcaster. And while I don't think this is Apple engaging in an ARM series with Spotify or anything like that. The fact that, like, one division is investing in what feels like original podcast content certainly makes the story a little more interesting.
2: Just a little curious on this, Nick. I mean, how much is Apple putting behind its podcast content in terms of resources? Because,
5: you know, Apple probably could put a lot
2: if they wanted to. And, <laughs> and what might the payoff be uh, for them here?
5: In terms of investment, you know, Apple's a notoriously... Uh, you know, private secretive company. Uh, and on the podcast front, my like, there's, there's very sort of little public sense of how much you're spending. We know that the podcast team or the team that's uh, sort of designated for the for the entire podcast infrastructure is relatively small compared to to other divisions in the business. But they're also labeling this project as an Apple TV Plus production. So I think the money's coming from that part of the business.
2: Apple TV Plus. I knew there had to be some kind of podcast to TV trajectory. Nick, <laughs> I
5: mean, that's the whole point. If you're going to make yeah. something,
2: make it uh, twice talking to Nick Qua, the go-to journalist covering the podcast industry. All right, moving on now to Spotify. It acquired uh, Betty Labs. It's the LA-based startup behind the live sports audio app uh, Locker Room. It's been compared to another app called Clubhouse. Uh, Nick, how so?
5: And for the uninitiated,
2: uh, how do these
5: things work? Let's start with Clubhouse. It's a, it's an audio chat app that's sort of the vanguard of this new media category that some people are calling social audio. Uh, it's basically a live participatory audio streaming experience. The basic flow is that you jump into a room with users around the world uh, and you chat about stuff. Um, it, it's gotten a ton of attention and press recently, in part driven by a few celebrity appearances on the, on the app, uh, including uh, Elon Musk once in a while, but largely al- also due to hype that's uh, been largely... <laughs> facilitated by its very prominent investors including the venture firm Andreessen and Horowitz locker room is kind of like a smaller sports centric experience uh, i've i've used both a bunch and uh, i i cannot overemphasize how like new and um and sort of relatively sort of like Shaggy, this this experience is it's like it's it's very, it's still really emerging, uh, but it's still like getting a ton of attention. Well, I mean,
2: that's why not? Why live life without hype? I mean, that's that's the whole reason for being. <laughs> that alive. is also my philosophy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, Nick, what do you think of Spotify's move to buy Betty Labs and net the locker room? I mean, what's the upside for them?
5: As Clubhouse and social audio has been blowing up, um, there's oh, there's been this sort of question as to whether Spotify, which uh for context is aspiring to be some sort of all consuming audio streaming platform. Uh, whether they'll get in on the action somehow. I know a lot of audio executives who are convinced that a company would actually be the ones who would go out and buy Clubhouse at the end of the day. But but instead, they've gone out and bought to buy this uh, smaller app, which is, again, as I mentioned, sort of sports-focused. That's why it's called Locker Room. And Spotify is saying that they intend to expand the experience beyond sports stuff and also build it up as a tool that's less about everyday people and everyday users hanging out with each other virtually and more about giving its artists and its creators, whether it's musicians or podcasters, a tool to sort of deliver live experiences to their fans.
2: So this uh, live audio app thing, Nick, it kind of sounds like what we're doing right now, radio. So, I mean, <laughs> what could this growing group of live audio apps mean for my bread and butter, terrestrial radio?
5: Yeah, that was the Reddit joke last week that Spotify like, basically, the, the, the thing that guy from uh, Silicon Valley did, put put radio on the internet, right? Um, yeah, good job doing radio. It's been around. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that, like, yes, this is kind of radio-ish. But we also, you know, there's a possibility of like a different way of providing that live audio experience over the Spotify app specifically. So, what does this mean for radio in the long run? You know, uh, to be determined. We'll we'll see. But in theory, if this thing goes the way that Spotify hopes it will go, um, we're talking about like a sort of wide sort of user base and a generation of people who like primarily engage with audio whether it's music or talk um, over their phones as opposed to over uh, sort of a broadcast radio whether it's over their car or uh, a thing that they buy to put on their kitchen tables to play radio um, live. That, that we're looking at a possibility where people, that it could be just a generation that gets used to this and therefore sees less reason to use radio. Like that's the sort of zero-sum analysis of how this might play out. The sort of non-zero-sum analysis here, the sort of perfect version of the future, is one in which like, people uh, grow more affinity towards live audio. And then they will also include radio as part of that mix. But it's still too early to see where the consumer behavior will go over the long term here.
2: If you'll allow me, Nick, for a second to do my old man shaking his fist at the world thing. (laughs) Radio has survived television. Radio has survived the Internet. Radio has survived podcasting. I think there's space. There's probably space for everyone. (laughs) All right. Last but definitely not least, let's talk about Serial Productions. They're launching a new audio series called The Improvement Association. Here's a clip from the trailer.
3: The story behind this one election, the only time in recent history that a congressional election was thrown out for fraud, is actually the story of a series of elections, of election fights, fueled by personal grudges and petty beefs and family history and history history. And it's about the oldest fight of all, the fight for the black vote.
2: All right, Nick, so what can listeners expect from this uh, new show, The
5: Improvement Association, and when is it actually going to be released? So the show, uh, the tagline for it is, quote, a true story about election fraud. Um, And it features reporter Zoe Chase, who is sort of like the crack political reporter on staff, uh, traveling to Bladen County, North Carolina, to investigate the power of election fraud allegations, uh, even when they're not substantiated. And that's what the press release sort of describes the story as being. If I'm not mistaken, it's connected to a smaller story that she did for This American Life in December 2016. And this, I think, is sort of an expansion or a continuation of the story that she reported there. The series is scheduled to debut uh, on April 13th, that's next week. And uh, I'm interested. Like it's a. Uh, it looks like they're playing with fire a little bit. And I think whatever Zoe Chase uh, does is going to be super good and interesting. And I'm looking forward to checking out this one.
2: That's fun, right? Unless you get burned. <laughs> That's podcast industry journalist Nick Quad. Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. I mean, if you missed any part of Take Two today, I think you arguably missed the fourth best show of the week. Really, it's at least the fourth best show this week. Just find it wherever you get your podcasts there. We will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez, L.A. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.